If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's pray. Fathers, always, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for ensuring that each one of us can have access to your word. We ask, Lord, as we read and as we study, as we contemplate, Lord, as I seek to explain, we pray, Lord, you would give me clarity of thought. and pray, Lord, you would enable all of us to be able to grasp what is being said here. The Father, we may continue to grow in our understanding of your word. The Father, we may each one become more like Jesus Christ in our behavior, in our attitude, in the way we think, and even what we think about. We ask, Lord, that we'll continue to be able to live lives that will increasingly give glory and honor to who you are. So I desire, Lord, to be changed in such a way that we will walk in the wisdom of God and that will be used by you in the lives of others to encourage those that are uh, believers in the faith and to be used as Father in the lives of those that are unbelievers to consider Christ and the gospel of Christ. We thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So in verse 11, Paul continues to thought from verse 10. Paul is acknowledging the reality that many of his daily trials could have resulted in his physical death. He was aware of that. However, he also understood that through his weakness, through his sufferings, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ in him, was really put on display and became instrumental in bringing spiritual life to the Corinthians. And that's the kind of idea they want to keep in our mind as we look at what he says and the way that he says it. Again, in verse 9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So basically the apostles, Paul is one of those, they are on, they are on exhibition. They are, they are put forth out there for others to look at them by both angels and men. So the idea there that we are to glean from this is that you and I really are on ex exhibition to the lost world and to the angelic world. We don't always think about our lives in those terms, but I think that it will help us as we live life. Again, remember that one of the things that Paul's talking about a great deal here is the suffering, is the affliction. It's what takes place in life, both by persecution and just living in a world that is cursed by sin. And so it gives to us a, the paradigm that's needed for us to have an understanding as to why when it comes to suffering, why we are suffering in particular. William MacDonald says this, Life out of death is one of the deepest principles of our existence. The meat we eat and by which we live comes through the death of animals. 
It is so in the spiritual realm. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the church is persecuted and afflicted and hunted and pursued, the more Christianity spreads. And yet it is difficult for us to accept this truth. When violence comes to a servant of the Lord, we normally think of it as a tragedy. But actually, this is God's normal way of dealing. It is not the exception. Constant exposure to death for Jesus' sake is the divine manner in which the life of Jesus is manifested in our mortal bodies. When I read that, I do understand that for many of us, because we live in this country, there's kind of a disconnect with that. We, we don't really recognize that because we, we, don't, we don't really face that. We live in a very unique time, this period of time that we know of the United States, to where as Christians we don't really, there's just not a whole lot of suffering. I'm not saying no one suffers. I'm not saying we have no affliction. But it's not like it is for maybe most Christians or many Christians throughout the world. But when you think about what he talks about, that when, when Christians are being hunted, when they're being persecuted, when they're being killed, Christianity seems to continue to expand. One of the things that's going on in the Middle East that has many Muslims that are in areas of leadership stumped is the more that they hunt down believers and even kill them, there are hundreds of conversions to Christ every day. You read story after story after story of Muslims coming to know Christ, knowing full well that if they choose to believe in Jesus Christ, they then will become the hunted. That, that there is a good chance their families will not understand. Their families don't want to understand. There'll be those in their own family who will not only want them dead, there'll be those in their own family who will be willing to kill them. It is amazing how that takes place. I'll never forget, there's a story that I read of a, of a Muslim lady who ended up becoming a believer. And as she became a believer, she became well-known among the circles of believers because of her boldness to share her faith as a Christian. But she never went to the street corner and began to speak out loud. She would even be physically attacked if she just spoke about anything, much less Christianity. But she was asked once by a Westerner who kind of tracked her down, how is it that she apparently is used by God in the lives of so many people? So many other Muslim women were becoming believers as a result of, of her sharing her faith with them. And this is what she said. Because, you know, they asked her, are you afraid of being caught and arrested? And, you know, all of that she was really unconcerned with. And they say, well, how do you know who to speak to? I mean, who is the spy and who's not the spy? And so in English, she basically, I'll give it to you in English because I can't speak Arabic. But she said basically this. She goes, oh, I don't worry about any of that. I just ask the Lord to bring to me whoever he wants me to share Christ with. And I go to the market and I sit at a table and I wait. And all of a sudden, a woman will come up to her, and I don't know how they begin. Like, are you the one? Are you so-and-so? Do you know Jesus? You have to kind of be careful how you say those things. And she just says, yes, I am. I know, I know Jesus. And then they sit down, and she just shares the Lord. And if they come to Christ, you know, she tries to find a way to get in the Bible. And then they get up and leave. And it's almost as if she says, okay, Lord, who's next? 
<laughs> it's absolutely astounding. And she says that she's busy every day. So how does that happen? Well, I don't know the particulars, but the Lord does. And there's countless stories of that t- kind of thing taking place all over the world. There is an astounding stat that comes out of China. When China closed its borders, kicked all the missionaries out, and aggressively uh, went after the Christian church, it is believed by many, and my numbers aren't going to be exactly spot on, but they're going to be kind of close, but it is believed that when that took place decades ago, there were maybe, maybe 50,000 believers. And in a country of billions, that's not really that many. During the 70s, when the borders, when the country began to become more reopened and, and Christians were, were going in trying to, trying to discover what had happened to the believers there and also to go and to share their faith. And, you know, again, they weren't, it's still not quite an open thing you can do, but it was much more open. They discovered that there are over 500,000 believers. Well, what happened? The missionaries were gone. The church was being hunted and, and believers were being killed by the hundreds. And the growth was 10 times what it was before. It's, it's amazing. And that kind of thing is repeated all the time. But again, what we need to make sure that we take away from this, because we live in a, in a changing climate, and I'm not talking about the weather. We're living in a, in a time when, when it's becoming more acceptable to be anti-Christian, to speak in, in very negative terms about those who believe in Christ, where it's almost okay in some circles if Christians are mistreated, or maybe even their rights trampled on. It's not really a concern to others because, well, it's Christians. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's, that's happening, as, and we see it taking place. And countries are, are writing laws in such a way that it, it kind of appears that it, it's, it's geared towards stamping out Christianity, stamping out the ideology, stamping out what it is we believe in. And it's, it's going on on many fronts. And so we need, to, we need to recognize that, that as these things take place and as these things begin to affect us and affect our children and others that come after us, we need to have a proper perspective on this. We need to, we need to be able to explain why this is happening. And I believe Paul is doing that here. And so he says in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Or a paraphrase, and I think I have this in your notes, we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. So that helps us to give to us that perspective that we are to have. You and I are to have at all times an impact on the lives of others. When I say that you and I are to have an impact on the lives of others, I'm not talking about necessarily that you have an impact that will one day make a very good documentary where they say, oh, we want to tell you about so-and-so. That's not going to make the news. It doesn't necessarily mean that your life by itself is going to have an impact on someone's that someone's life completely turns around. But both collectively and individually, we are to impact those around us because as we've already seen before, we carry in our bodies a great treasure. We carry within us the gift of life, the message of life, the only message that can bring about life. The only truth that will 
inform an individual how their sins, which separates them from God, can be forgiven. How it can be removed. We, we carry within us the directions as to exactly how to get to heaven. How to have a relationship, an intimate personal relationship with the God of heaven. How we carry within us how it is a person can have a life that is filled with great meaning and depth and fine satisfaction and joy regardless of the circumstances. We have all of that. And so there's this desire of God to use us in the lives of others, to encourage other believers and to bring that message of life to non-believers. It's, so it's going to have an impact on them. Good or bad, you know, there are those, that the Bible talks about that there are those who are unbelievers and we are the stench of death to them. Everyone's not going to receive the message that we have. But we are to have an impact. But again, this is not where you wake up in the morning and you try to figure out how you can manipulate people in situations so that you can have an impact or say something. Just live your life. Live your life as a believer. Be conscious of where you are, where you work, what you like to do. Be aware of that. Have a self-awareness. And then as you pray, ask the Lord to give you an awareness of those around you that may need a word of encouragement or those around you that you may be able to build, begin to build a relationship with so you can talk to them about the Lord, so you can befriend them, so you can help them in, in really whatever way possible, but you always want to find a way to be able to help them spiritually. And so again, we live in the face of death, but this results in eternal life for you. Verse 13 says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed. And so I spoke. We also believe. And so we also speak. So basically, in spite of the frailty and the weakness of the clay pot in which the gospel has been entrusted, and the fact that they were continually being tried, facing death continually, death works in us, Paul says we have a faith, a firm belief, a confident, a complete trust, which allows us to keep on speaking about Jesus teaching about Jesus, and preaching about Jesus. When he says here, since we have the same spirit, some commentators think that the meaning of spirit here is Holy Spirit. I don't think it is, but there are some who think that. Most do interpret spirit there as a reference to the same kind of spirit that the psalmist possessed. Because again, he says, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. What was written. Well, the, the, the attitude the psalmist possessed, uh, his attitude or his outlook is found in Psalm 116, verse 10. It reads this way. I'm reading this one from the Amplified. I believed, I trusted in, relied on, I clung to my God. And therefore have I spoken, even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Paul's point is that trust in the Lord motivates a person to action. And here he's talking about speaking. Notice how Paul phrases this. Since we have. Again and again throughout the letter, Paul dwells upon these possessions that we have. The possessions of a Christian. He talks about confidence we have. Having such hope. We have this ministry. We have this treasure. Having the same spirit. Having these promises. 
What he's talking about is what we all possess. We possess these things. We have confidence, not in ourselves, in Christ, in the work of the Spirit, in the gospel. We have, we possess hope. Our hope is in Christ. He's our guarantee. We possess that. We have a ministry. Whoever you are, you have a ministry. It's simply serving others in all kinds of ways. We all have this. We have this treasure. If you are a Christian, you have the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the same spirit of faith. We have these promises. Paul often builds an argument upon these possessions. In fact, the word he uses there in the Greek language is, is the word echo, and it means having. It is in the present tense. What that means is it is continuing. It, there is a persistence and a permanence of these possessions. We always have these. <clears throat> John MacArthur says this, Those who lack conviction in their teaching, their witnessing, their preaching, do so because they lack conviction in their hearts, because they have a weak confidence in the truth of God. They seek the comfort, prestige, and popularity that comes from muting the message. True belief impels strong, consistent, unwavering testimony to the truth. <clears throat> then he relates a familiar story from history. Being on trial for his faith before the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther defiantly declared, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, my conscience is captive to the Word of God, then I cannot and I will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. amen. He was on trial and asked to recant the things he had written, the things he was talking about, primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ. He couldn't do it, he just, he couldn't. He was unable to, because he had this confidence, this trust in the truth of what he believed in and what the scriptures taught and said. Those who genuinely believe the truth cannot help but speak that truth. You, we've all, maybe you've seen people in this kind of a situation where someone's in a position where something is being talked about and they can't help themselves. They have to say something. As believers, we, we need to be that kind of individual when it comes to this. If you're in a circle of individuals, and you know, <clears throat> you've heard me say this many, many times, uh, but let's say you talk, there's a group of individuals talking about maybe a tragedy, maybe someone's child has died, and we know the nice things people say, <clears throat> sometimes the things they say trying to be nice, and some people say, well, all I know is, is angel gain, heaven gained another angel. We've said that a lot. I do believe as a Christian, you have to be that person who cannot help but speak and say, that's, that's not true. Now, that's not going to throw you up to the top of the charts in popularity, but you can at least give a brief, a brief explanation. You can at least begin by letting the individuals know that, <clears throat> that if that little child becomes an angel, that means they become somebody else. They're not them anymore. And then say, how tragic would that be for the parents? That if they believe in Christ and go to heaven, well, their child's not there any longer. They have to go looking for some angel. No, that's, that's not what happens. That person goes to heaven. 
How, and then you can get into how do we know that. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I'm not telling you you have to do it the way I do or anybody else. But we need to be that kind of individual that there are just certain conversations. Maybe even become so well known about that kind of thing that there may be somebody in the group that's going to roll their eyes because they know what's coming. And sometimes we have a fear of someone else rolling their eyes when we speak. It's so powerful, we just, we'll just stay quiet. So maybe you should practice. <laughs> have people roll their eyes at you on purpose. But the idea is we need to be that kind of individual. <clears throat> Again, why? We've been appointed to that. God has told us this is going to happen. He, he wants to use us. Again, Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. Why would we be the kind of individual who cannot help but speak the truth? Why would we be that way? Why are we that way? Why does Paul act and think and speak like this? Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So Paul here is saying that the resurrection removes all fear of temporal death. The word knowing here means having come to know. He has come to know something. The word know here means to know by perception or by sight. Remember that Paul had seen the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So again, having come to know that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up also. We are, we are living in connection with Jesus, and that assures our resurrection. Paul is fully confident of this. In fact, you might want to put it this way, and this is not original with me, but it says, if you don't fear death, then you have nothing to fear in life. That is the ultimate question for many. Is death, what is death? What happens when you die? And there's a great fear of death. We don't have to be afraid. We're not in a hurry to die. It's not that we want to die, but we're not afraid of death. We understand that. Again, that's why as we gather together as Christians, when a, when a believer dies, there is some grieving, but there's no despairing. It's not like how non-believers deal with this and I'm not sure how they all deal with death I don't know how they would do that I don't know how do you come to terms with that you have to go someplace in your head to try to find a way to, to figure this out and to go on in life for many there's just despondency remember I told you the time I was uh, called in the hospice there was an officer that she had retired from the jail <clears throat> she didn't go to church or anything she was married she had pancreatic cancer. Um, she was close to death. I had gone to see her a few times. And one of the other officers of the jail was very close to the family. And, and he called me to tell me that she had passed and said that they, you know, they didn't go to church. They had no pastor. There was no one that was going to be able to do the funeral. I wonder if I'd be willing to do the funeral, if I'd be willing to go there and at least meet her husband you know, at hospice and all that. I said, oh, absolutely. So I go there. Um, on this particular day when she died, they, they, her body, they, they took her body. It was on a... Uh, bed with wheels and they wheeled into a, another room and her family was there which is just her husband and her son and I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was his his wife or his 
or his sister. But anyway, so there were three of them, and I went in and um, introduced myself briefly and sat down with them. And I've noticed this. It was just, it just it was kind of a stark contrast because being around believers when a believer in the family dies, there's the normal, there's, there's grieving, there's tears, there's sadness. There's even moments of silence, um, uh, you know, when all this, you know, immediately after the death. But there's also, it's not only silence. There's still conversation. There's, there's individuals talking about that individual, maybe even talking about death. There are those who are talking about that person being with the Lord. Not just where they're not just throwing out cliches, but, but they believe that and really comforting maybe each other with, with the truth of what the Word of God says. When I was in this room with this family, there was absolute silence the whole time. After I introduced myself and sat down with them, none of them spoke. Five minutes, ten minutes, just so you know, being in a room with people and there's a dead body and there's 15 minutes of absolute silence, that's a long time. That can become very awkward. I'm racing through my mind, what in the world? I, want to, I wanted to say something and I just said, Lord, I, I mean, I just I have no idea what to say. There's a lot of things I can say, but I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not looking to start anything. And after a few more minutes, this is what her husband said. Well, I guess that's it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, if you're not a believer, yes, that's it. From his point of view, that was it. A life was lived, a life is over, we're gone. There is no talk about the future, no talk about seeing anyone again, and there wasn't even talk about the past. No memories, nothing. That was it. The next day, I did dread a conversation I was going to have with the husband because I'm in, intent on being very honest with people because I, I do not do a funeral for people that I know who weren't believers, and I'm not going to say or even hint that they're in heaven. Now, I'm not going to... Uh, announce that they're burning in hell. It would be inappropriate to do that. But I'm not going to somehow make it sound like that person is in a better place. I'm not going there. And so I, I began to speak with him and I said, I need to talk to you about uh, my, the message I'm going to bring. And I just, I, just, I just want you to know that, you know, and kind of went through the whole thing that I, you know, I, I know you folks didn't go to church. And so I you know, I ended up saying, I'm not going to say that I know she's in heaven. And I was waiting to see what he would He goes, okay. I said, okay. And I found out that there were some officers who came to the funeral, and they were keenly interested in how I was going to handle that, because they knew that she was not religious at all. This is where I normally almost beg someone from the family to do a eulogy, to speak about the person, because... And I, I'm, again, I'm not going to try to pretend or make the person sound like they were some kind of a saint because I don't want even to give an indication to someone that I'm thinking that because of good they did, they went to heaven. But there was no one to do that. There was going to be the music being played, people come in, they sit down, I get up, pray, speak, pray, we're done. 
And so I got up and I began to talk about death. I talked about death and life. And then I talked about heaven. I never once mentioned her. I mean, I couldn't. And I just talked about and basically presented the gospel as best I could in that situation. And uh, the, the guy who was the administrator of the jail, he's a Christian, came up to me later and he was kind of smiling. He says, I was wondering how you're going to handle that. He goes, that was pretty good. He says, and I don't think anyone noticed that you never said a word about her. I said, well, thank you. But I said, I feel bad for them. They have no hope. He says, yeah, they have no hope. How horrible that is. That's reality for so many people. So we should never take lightly that you and I understand to a degree death and we don't have to be afraid and hopefully we've come to a point that we're not afraid we've all heard this before we cling to this we're in first corinthians 15 paul writes i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I want you to look at the end of verse 14 for a moment. Again, verse 14 reads, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And then it says, and bring us with you into his presence. The New American Standard says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with you and will present us with you. And then the NIV says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us to Jesus and present us with you in his presence. So when is this presentation? Commentators again vary on this a little bit. Paul doesn't seem to exclude that in a sense, the presentation is at least in part in this life, maybe positionally, because we're holy and blameless before God because of the, of the work of Christ. But in a, a Greek word study book by Mar Marvin Vincent, he says, whether the reference is to God's future judgment or to his present approval, that cannot be determined dogmatically. However, several favor, as I do, this is a reference to the future judgment, as it seems more natural as Paul is marking the consummation of the redemptive work. So what Paul is saying there, I believe, is to bring a word of comfort that we know he, that's God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us to be with Jesus, and then he will bring us with Jesus and into his presence. That's kind of the idea. It, it's a wonderful thing to think about. In verse 15, Paul then goes on and says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more, uh, as this grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. When he says, for it is all, or for all things, everything he's been talking about in chapter 4, everything that he says is going on is for their sake, as he writes to these believers, or to the people here in Corinth. It was for their benefit. All the things that he was going through, and the apostles were going through, and the suffering and the affliction, it was all designed to promote their salvation. All that Paul had endured was for the benefit of the Corinthians. 
The all things in context refer specifically to his variegated pressing circumstances and labors to the point of exhaustion. So what we need to be thinking of, I think, in our lives is that there are many times the sufferings that we go through may be, are, are being used by God for the salvation of others. I'm not suffering for their sins. It's not that. But my suffering, my affliction may bring, whether it's some kind of special attention, maybe it's a thought that an individual has, but, but it's being used by God to reveal the relationship we have with Christ. It's being used to reveal maybe the reality of who God is. And, and it's being done for their benefit. So there, we should then, I believe, as Christians, have this attitude, even though we don't like suffering, no one likes it, but there should, at the same time, there should, we should embrace it. I may not know specifically, in a sense, who it's for, but I know that God has his reasons as to everything that I'm going through. It is for my benefit to grow as a believer in many different ways, but it is also for the benefit of others. I may or may not know who they are, but it is important that we respond as Christians to all of our sufferings and pressures. Whether it's just financial pressures because your business may not be doing well or you're going through some really tight times in your, in your personal finances, it might be that. It may be that it's, it's augmented by maybe a persecution because you are a Christian. It may be tension within your family or with others because you are a Christian, whether you've brought it on yourself or not, depending on all the different circumstances. But the way we embrace that, the way we handle that, it may be the affliction that comes because you now have some disease. Maybe it's cancer or something else. So it's not that we're not trying to fight it. It's not that we're not trying to get well. We are. But we don't handle it like the non-believer. We must be different. It doesn't mean that we become a clown and we're always laughing about everything that's going on. But we take it seriously. But there is definitely this idea that, that we are approaching this very differently. And that will open scores of doors, at least with others who are going through the same thing. You will, you will, if you're being treated for cancer, as you go to the doctor's office, you're going to meet you can meet other people who are being treated for cancer. And you're going to be those who may superficially say that they're comforted by God. There may be some who actually are. There may be those who have no clue. You can be such a beacon of light for them. You carry within that weakened vessel that you live in the great treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now through your suffering, and because of your suffering, you are given a unique opportunity to speak of the greatness of God and how good he is. You can speak of the reality of, of the relationship you have with Christ and how that brings to you comfort, how that helps you endure what you are going through. You can relate to them. You, can, you may be getting the same treatment and you can say, well, you know, I know that you may have this. I know I experience nights. I just, I cannot get comfortable to sleep because of the medicine. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they probably stayed up hours trying to find something on TV. And even though there may be 149 chap uh, channels, they can't find a thing. 
You know, they go to Netflix and they've seen all those movies. And they just, they just like, they're just going bonkers. And you can talk about how, you know what? Yeah. There, there's been times I've tried the TV thing, but you know what I found is really helpful? And you start talking about it. I think about the Lord or I'm praying. Just begin to go in that direction. They're paying attention. Even if they don't like what you're saying. What a great opportunity we have as Christians. So the first purpose that's stated here is that Paul is suffering for the good of the people. His suffering resulted in the people of Corinth hearing the gospel and being saved. He reminds the Corinthians that he was not their master, but he was functioning in the role of a servant. Remember, all of this is tied up into him defending himself because there are others who are trying to undermine his authority, undermine his popularity, undermine his position in the church so they would follow them. And so as he defends himself, he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time on doing that, but as he brings attention to all these things he's going through, he, he continues to point to the lessons that they are to learn from what he's experiencing and how he views it. So they can see that truly he can be trusted and he is their friend. Another way of describing his daily death to self, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humbly regarding others as more important than himself, not merely looking out for his own person, personal interests, but the interests of the saints at Corinth. That's Philippians 2. All that Paul had experienced was for the spiritual benefit of the saints. So begin to think of your life in this way. Maybe you are going through a time when there's a great deal of suffering. Perhaps all the suffering you're going through is for the benefit of your children. It's for the benefit of your grandchildren. Don't mess that up. Don't make it all about you and them serving you. You want to make sure that you are passing on to them the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others who may want to serve you, which is fine because they want to help you. That's great. But don't make it all about yourself. Now, I'm not saying don't pretend you're not suffering. But don't make it singly about your suffering. One commentator said this, Paul's goal was never his own comfort. It was never his own reputation or his own popularity. In fact, we, could, we might even say that it ultimately really wasn't about the salvation of others, though it's tied to that. The final goal of Paul's selflessness, sacrificial service, was that more voices would be added to the hallelujah chorus of praise and worship to God. Because he was being used by God to extend the grace of God. The Lord's servants bathe their hearts and souls in the light of God's glory, reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. It should be our prayer and our desire that others see the glory of Christ reflected in our life. That's a life well lived. We want to live well for Christ. We want to die well for Christ. In those ways, our life makes an impact on the lives of others. And that brings ultimate glory to Christ. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to have this proper, full biblical paradigm concerning our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would remove from us, maybe even the instinct at times, to proclaim, why me, when we go through difficulties. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have the perspective that is foundational to being a, a believer, one, Lord, that would be developed by your spirit and by spending time in your word. That, Father, we would have an inner strength that doesn't come from ourselves, but comes from you. We ask you would give us wisdom. 
We ask, Lord, that regardless of what we face or go through, whether it is now or whether it's tomorrow or whether it's in a few months or a few years, whenever that is, we pray, Lord, that you would prepare us to be able to do so really triumphantly so that others really would marvel, maybe wrongly at first, thinking somehow we are great, but Lord, you would give us opportunity to correct that wrong understanding and that we'd be able to explain to them, no, it's, it's because of Christ, that Jesus is alive and that my relationship with Jesus is substantial, that it is real, that it is valid, and that it's credible. That those who are hurting, those who are wanting, those who are longing, we hear the truth of Christ and perhaps see the gospel of Christ and live before them. Thank you, Lord, for the hope of Christ that is within all of us who believe. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who do not believe, we pray, Lord, in your love and graciousness, we ask you would press home the point to them that they are separated from you by their sin and they would never be able to make up for that, but that you offer to them the free gift of eternal life through Christ. Thank you, Father. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.